Welcome to day plus one of the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast, November 4th, Wednesday, 2020. The election continues. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, a sleep-deprived Noah Rothman, associate editor. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. A sleep-deprived Christine Rosen, uh, senior writer. Hi, John. And probably an extremely sleep-deprived, often sleep-deprived, just <laughs> as a general rule, but uh, particularly sleep-deprived today, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So, uh, is, okay, I got 45 minutes of sleep. Uh, what about, uh, I was like up till six, and then I had to get up with the kids. So, uh, what about you guys? Where are you on the sleep? Uh, I did better than that. I got a, I got at least like three and a half pushing four hours. So oh, man. I'm golden. Like, I'm like a fighter pilot. Amazing. <laughs> Noah, you, you like, you like had a, you were up at like three, and then you had to like do a, Radio thing at five thirty-five, five, yeah. So I went to bed at around uh, two. I tried to stay up for Trump. I missed Trump, um, but uh, yeah, I went to bed at uh, right around one thirty, one thirty for forty-five. Was asleep by two, and up by five to do an NPR hit. Right, and uh, Abe, I went to sleep right after Trump, and I've uh, been up since I don't know eight thirty. Okay, so oh, which, which nine, no, 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 yeah, right. It's Thank nice, you. but yeah, okay. So basically, I'm I, I've gone into this because um, I'm so exhausted that uh, you know I'm just going to blather, and we're all going to blather uh, and throw out bizarre theories and try to get through this uh, by trying to entertain you uh, in our extreme exhaustion. So, uh, because you guys were asleep uh, and missed trump or you know missed the reaction to trump you missed like 45 minutes of shrieking at the top of their lungs people on television about how this represents an unprecedented threat to our democracy and how trump saying that uh as far as he's concerned he won the election and there he not not defining who they are are trying to steal it from him uh, you know, represents a new low uh, in the history of uh, America, the world, world civilization. And either I, either I am was too tired, or I just you know it's been four years and I I just don't have the ability to generate the outrage necessary. Uh, but uh, I was totally unsurprised by what he said, and actually thought that um, what he was implying was that the media were the ones who were denying him the election because there was a lot of his, his palaver all had to do with how we were up and then they stopped counting and then they stopped counting, but then the media would, you know, then uh, uh, we, we, they wouldn't call Florida and they still won't call North Carolina. And, uh, uh, Fox, though I don't think he named Fox, called Arizona, and it shouldn't have called Arizona. And like we were all ready to have a big party if they just called the states that we needed them to call, and they didn't do it. And so, you know, we're not going to let them steal it, and we're not going to let them start counting new votes. Now, here's the funny part about it, which is that I think what he said in relation to the votes was perfectly kosher which is he said, we're not going to have them like finding votes at four o'clock in the morning, meaning votes that were like, you know, somehow put on a pile at four o'clock in the morning. 
when the rules, particularly in Pennsylvania, are these are votes that had to be received, had to be postmarked by the day of election, right? They, they have to have bear a postmark that says November 3rd on them or they're not going to count. And basically, we know from all sorts of experience, not just Democratic, but Republican experience, that when you go into overtime and there are recounts and there's this and there's that and there's the other thing, people make whatever argument they have to make to hand to get to the number they want to reach. And that would include starting to argue that it's disenfranchising if this envelope, which clearly was intended to be a registered vote, doesn't have a postmark, you should still yeah, count it. But that's why these remarks are incredibly irresponsible, John. You're talking about a framing of events that have not happened. We haven't gotten to a recount yet. We haven't gotten to the postmark, post-postmark, post-election day ballots yet. We're still counting election day ballots and absentees received before the election, which is why, and he used the word fraud, and which is why the president's remarks last night were reckless and irresponsible. It I'm, is, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you have the juice. to them doesn't make them less reckless and irresponsible. No, I'm just saying I'm glad you have the juice to respond with, <laughs> with, with that anger because, like I say, I, you know, he's, he's, he's beaten me down. Like, uh, of course no one's ever said something like this before, except plenty of people in politics here's, have said stuff like this before. Of course. So here's the so, problem is that the people who are uh, rending garments over these remarks do the American public a profound disservice, uh, in part because they think that, Trump voters are so manipulable that they'll be, uh, you know, thrust into the streets by the president's sub, you know, subconscious commands to make them go, you know, make trouble, um, which is again projection on a, a grand scale. Right. But it's not as though that that's something that you know we haven't seen from Democrats, for example. For Hillary Clinton has spent the last four years calling Donald Trump illegitimate, using the word illegitimate. Right. It doesn't matter. It's all in the Constitution. You can say whatever the heck you want. The president can say whatever the heck he wants. His term ends on January twentieth, twenty twenty one. The end. So it doesn't really matter what he says. Okay. All right. Anybody else got rage? Outraged? Like, it's terrible. Like, the, the, we're, we're shattering norms, and the norms are being shattered, and there's worm Twitter, shattering. Twitter is outraged. No, I'm asking yeah, you guys. Forget no. Twitter. No, no, no. no. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, the platform itself that, that flagged his first response. Oh, yeah. Saying that, um, saying that uh, he would be making these announcements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it was it was an easy enough thing to avoid. He could have said a version of what Biden said, which is we think we're on track to win. That's a very different statement than they're going to steal it from us. Um, But we should all have outrage for, you know, what we just spent months doing, which is talking about polling numbers. Right. Right. That that is outrageous. Okay, I I want to get to that. But I also want to say that having watched Trump and Abe, you watched. Right. No, you didn't watch. I don't know if, Christine, you had. It was interesting because he, he worked himself up to the moment when he went into the fraud argument. The first like three or four minutes were actually kind of funny. He was like, we're doing so great. I mean, they never said we would win Florida. We would only win Florida. We win Florida by a lot. And then this and that. And then they're not calling it. You know, and he had this kind of, he was doing his kind of, uh, you know, sitting on the on the lip of the stage, talking intimately to the crowd about what's going on in his head. And then there was this moment where he could have chosen not to say they're stealing the election from us. Because, I, you know, there was a teleprompter, but God knows what was on the teleprompter. And then he decided to go, then he decided to go for it. And so there was a kind of weird thing where it was this kind of amusing charming uh, kind of uh, off the cuff thing that he was doing 
saying he was really happy with what happened last night and annoyed with the media for screwing around with him. And then he just, he couldn't contain it. He had to go to the, they're, they're, it's a fraud. And then he said this ludicrous thing about how they're going right to the Supreme Court, which is not how it works. You know, the, you, the Supreme Court is an appellate court, so there actually has to have to be cases argued in lower courts that the Supreme Court has to answer and address. Um, Bush v. Gore, which I guess is his precedent, of course, followed an argument by the Bush campaign that the standards by which the Florida Supreme Court had ruled that the votes could be counted in the way that the Biden, the Biden, the Gore people wanted to count them, were a, a 14th Amendment, were a denial of uh, of due process because they were, votes were going to be counted differently depending on who you were, and that this was uh, illegitimate. Largely, by the way, uh, absentee ballots and military ballots. Um, and that, therefore, there was a constitutional issue that d- dealt directly with this that gave the Supreme Court standing to intervene, even though it was a state case. And ordinarily, this a state case doesn't go, it has to be in a federal court, right? And people have now been arguing this for 20 years about whether or not what the Supreme Court did was legitimate because it wasn't a federal case. The Supreme Court is not getting involved in whether or not people should be counting ballots in Pennsylvania after Friday, you know, I mean, that that is not what the Supreme Court is going to do. It basically said we don't, it actually literally said we don't have standing to make this argument anyway. Uh, and maybe we will if something happens, but blah, blah. So it has to go to courts. Like he's not going right to the Supreme Court. It's just like something he made up uh, on the spot off, off the top of his head. Um, anyway, so let's go to the polling. Who else feels like an idiot? Well, I don't feel like a hundred percent of an idiot. I feel like I'm like a seventy percent idiot. idiot because um, what did what did we say yesterday that it's or what I think everybody agreed with me that it was a fair notion to spot the president a couple of points in places where there have been in the last two consecutive cycles a failure to capture the entire Republican vote. And it turns out that was wrong. You should have spotted him four points. Five. <laughs> <laughs> but Maybe. it wasn't it wasn't you know philosophically right. wrong it was just wrong in the market okay, but let, we need to because here's why i say i feel like an idiot i don't feel like an idiot because i thought it was possible that biden could win a landslide and obviously biden if he wins will win by the skin of his teeth right i mean it's got nothing to do with that it is that i feel like for the last year and maybe for the last four years the data that i've been getting by which i am and we all are, and we talk about this on the podcast constantly, trying to gauge how effective or ineffective what the president is saying is, who, who, whom he is reaching with his message, whom he is not reaching with his message, what's, what's working and what's not working, how the American people feel about certain types of things. And I now have literally no confidence that anything that I was being told looking at polling data reflected the views of the American people at all. So that our presumption over the course of this year, if you were presuming it, that the messages that Trump was sending out about the protests, about COVID, about the shutdowns, about the lockdowns, about this, about that, that, and how the public feels about lockdown, how the public feels about the protests, 
and the unrest. Um, polling organizations that said that Biden was going to win Wisconsin by 17, when if he wins, he's going to win it by <clears throat> 0.2, were telling me that these messages that Trump was, you know, was was trying to get across weren't scoring with anybody. And I don't have any way to measure now whether or not that's true. But I have no reason now to believe that the idea that I was getting, that the public wasn't respond hasn't been responding to Trump favorably on the way he has been talking about this. Why 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 should I believe that anything that I have thought over the course of this year is true if I if it is ballasted by the conduct, if, if the reason, the superstructure that made me think that were these polls that are were flabbergastingly bad. But didn't we, we were missing something in this election that um, is still problematic because I'm going to talk about political reporters right now. Political reporters have, have also led voters astray in terms of how they construct narratives with regard to Trump. We saw this in 2016. I think it was going on to some extent in this election as well. With one difference, which is that fewer of them were actually following the candidates around place by place because of the lockdown, because of the the pandemic. We actually didn't get as much of that potential for on the ground reporting. Now, I'm not saying they would have done it because they didn't they haven't done it in the past, but there was much more of an incentive to do it for this cycle and they simply couldn't. Um, so I wonder if we were over, we, we sort of overweighted what we were getting in terms of polling data, um, in part because there's nothing nothing to uh, to add to it to get a bigger picture. I mean, I just don't feel like we were getting, there were a few reporters who were out there talking to people on the regular in very small parts of the of the Rust Belt and giving us some good reports, but they were few and far between. So I, I feel like that's what I, when we did get the occasional um, interesting uh, report, you know, the one um, by Nellie Bowles out in, in, in the Pacific Northwest about the results of the rioting and the looting and the chaz and all that. That was an exception to some of the rules right. among conservatives following people closer to the on the on the ground and some of the more independent journalists. You were hearing that. But I don't think that was breaking through in the mainstream. Right. We needed more of that to ballast what we were hearing about the polling data. But see, this is where I feel like an idiot because I, I know all that. I know about media bias. I've been talking, writing about media bias from inside the media for four decades now. And I know that polling has missed. I know that there have been polling mistakes and polling crises and all of this. And yet the, the, the seduction of the numbers is overwhelming. I mean, Biden was up by nine in the real clear po- in the say the five thirty eight average in Wisconsin, which if he wins he'll win by point two. They were tied in Ohio in the polling averages. Trump won Ohio by eight and a half. Okay, for and then of course there's Florida where the polling error appears to have been pretty much like five points. But striking, of course, because it's clear that whatever they were measuring in the polling in Florida, it was not the Florida electorate that turned out to vote, if they were measuring at all, and if it wasn't all just made up. Because now, how do we know it's not all made up? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, like, how do we know that these polls, a lot of them, aren't just push polls, that they are, they are created by people who, in bad faith because they are trying to advance a specific agenda that will confirm the priors of certain people 
and depress and paralyze people who make contrary arguments. It, ha- it has to be said that, that, that um, not only were the polls terrible, but they were terrible in a way that some had made fun of, um, which is to say that all the mistakes were against Trump. I mean, I think the counter argument to, to your argument, John, is that this diabolical plot has backfired so spectacularly on its executors, um, which is, you know, it's hard to think of any other outcome because you can't hide the results of an election. It will be known eventually. You know, what these polls measured, it's slightly different to say you can't accurately model the electorate. What these polls found is a profound democratic wave election, which materialized. Democrats turned out in astounding numbers. What they didn't see was a a red wave. Republicans turned out in astounding numbers. You had basically two competing waves in the same way that they couldn't discover the sentiments in 2014 that led to a to a wave election for Republicans that weren't measured in the polls. Okay, we know that over the course of time in polling, uh, that there is an implicit understanding that pollsters, certain pollsters, make make stuff up. Polling firms disappear when their results are unverifiable or they're falsified by, you know, by sort of like really ludicrous swings away from what what they measure. Um, and we also know that people then refer to the behavior of pollsters in the, say, in the closing days of the election as herding, meaning that pollsters tend to find results that are common with other pollsters at the end of an election cycle because they don't want to seem like they're outliers, which suggests that they, they cook the books. You can only herd if you're doing, you know, date, you know, hard data by ignoring some of the data or massaging it so that it comes to look like other people's data, which means that it is understood in the sophology industry that pollsters make things up as a matter of course. So it's like real estate where, you know, where if you're looking at office space or something uh, and it says the office space is 4,000 feet, rentable, 4,000 rentable square feet, and then it turns out that what that really means is it's 2,500 square feet. But it's sort of understood that you're allowed to exaggerate by almost 50% um, to make it seem better. So if you you know go around looking at commercial real estate in New York City, they're like, well, it's, you know, it's 3,600 rentable square feet. And then you walk around and you say, this doesn't really look – well, it's actually – it's more like, you know, that's rentable square feet. So, you know, there's a premium. So there are industries in which this is like a common thing, like making stuff up or lying to enhance something is a is a thing that's done, and it's apparently done in polling as a matter of course. And there is a phenomenon of something called push polling, which is that you poll not to poll, but to depress, but to but to sort of have an effect on the result of that which you're polling. Either you're push polling to depress the person you call or to spread negative information about the candidate you're asking about uh, by calling people and pretending to be a pollster and saying, did you know that so-and-so is a child molester? Yes or no? You know, And then they can walk around and tell their neighbors that so-and-so is a child molester. Um, I think that they were hoping that Biden was going to win a commanding victory and that their own priors were being confirmed by everybody else's priors. And then you know, uh, some kind of weird uh, collective effervescence took over. And uh, I I just, I don't understand how political polling survives what happened here. 
I, I really don't. Like I, I'm now sort of like in a in a in a state of puzzlement about how Noah and I are going to write a piece for for commentaries December issue about how we should understand the results of the election. And I I'm not going to feel comfortable using exit polls. I don't know that we can use the exit polls. Uh, I don't know what the conditions are in which the exit polls were taken, and I don't trust that the polling data that people are collecting or have collected this year or over the past four years is real. Well, there's one thing that you can do, which is wait retroactively for the act, for the electorate that showed up. Um, so we, while well, exits are really weird this year and kind of hard to measure, eventually they will be accurately weighted to reflect the electorate. But think and even about that. Think even picture. about that. That itself is, a, is an interesting kind of fraud. So you collect data, and sometimes the exit polls, so you, 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 they claim, you know, they talk to 10,000 people. So the exit polls say X. But they also said that, you know, Kerry was going to win by 10. So then you apply the actual results to the, to, to the information that you gathered, and then you massage it so that it reflects the, you know, what, what happened. Is that real? Like, I don't know. Is that valid? I mean, we sort of accept it as valid because we have no choice because we otherwise have no data to help us understand, you know, what happened if we need separate data. But how do we know that that's a real, like, what, what scientific logic is there to the notion that you can retroactively revisit the information you gathered and tweak it to bring it in line with other with you know with actual results because maybe if you're if you're the results that you showed were so wildly off why is anything else in the survey not wildly off okay but there could be a silver lining to all this i mean you brought this up in our text thread uh, last night john which is that if we take that as a given that that political polling is just blown up and we can't trust it anymore, then what do you what do politicians and the political class have to measure what voters want by? And they actually have to go back to doing more work, right? They've got to get out there. They've got to test messages. It reminded me of something Dan Cass said on the show yesterday, where he's like, "You got to read the room." So, in a weird sense, the silver lining to the destruction of the polling industry would be that politicians actually have to get out there and work a room and read it and try to understand the voters by listening to them rather than just looking at the polling numbers that they've been handed on a platter. That's not a bad thing, in my opinion. Oh, I think there's even a much bigger silver lining, which is that we are out of Plato's cave. You know, we don't, we don't, we we now actually can get to sort of explore the world for for what it is. We don't. We don't have to. We don't have to live by these these this fiction, you know. The, look, I'm always suspicious, not just of polls, but of trying to quantify mysterious and complex human phenomena. So, so to see it blow up is I'm I'm perfectly fine with it in that respect. Right. Well, you know, this is the social science issue of our time that yeah. that that you know really uh, interesting research is being done on on unduplicable. Results, right? Sure. And that, you know, in social science, there there are theories that as many as 75% of social science experiments that are presented with hard data, as they are unduplicable, either were made up or massaged or something like that. An enormous, like a vast majority of them. And that social science itself is therefore a questionable field because, you know, you can't falsify mathematics, right? You can't falsify 
uh, you know, something that you engineer because if you build it, it'll fall apart if you don't use the right formula. But if you're saying, you know, like how many people, you know, uh, are, you know, how many kids are depressed because they're on a cell phone, you know, how, how can we possibly know that the information that is being gathered by those studies right. is true? The only real way that we know it is that it seems to comport with our understanding of the world. But politically, you cannot use that standard because by definition, you live in a bubble. Everybody lives in a bubble. And, you, and if you think that you know Biden can win by 10 because everybody you know is going to vote for Biden. Uh, it, it makes sense that you would because you don't really have the capacity. It's very hard to sort of like create the world around you, you know, using the sophistication necessary to accept that people believe things radically different from you and that you need to take them seriously, even if you don't agree with them. So I, you know, I think that's a, that's a, that's a we're we're in an interesting position, and therefore, it's persuasion. It's making arguments over time, and the validation or rejection of those arguments comes in elections for politicians. Like this this notion that you're supposed to be able to tell how things are going along the way, and then tweak your message and eh, drop this and don't do that or don't do the other thing, as opposed to say the way people used to do it, which is. You're Richard Nixon, you give a speech, you say, you know, there's a silent majority and you're sitting in the White House and you get five million letters. You say, you know, something's up here. Like, I, we got five million letters saying I'm with you on this. And that's how you do it. You don't do it by hiring, you know, a phrenologist to, you know, poke around, you know, feel on the skulls of the American, you know, uh, skull. Right. Um, I don't know. Well, so the, another another question then is how will politicians gauge that public response? And if and if too many, I mean, this is actually something we've also discussed before, which is the 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 excessive uh, weight given to Twitter, for example, and other social media, and and that's I think why the in the lead up to this election, the debate over how much power those platforms should have to censor or to uh, kick people off is so crucial because going forward, if we can't trust the polls and news is fairly uh, clearly on one side politically and the, and the absolute utter devastation of local news newspapers and, and sort of alternative sources that really look into local politics are gone. Everybody's on these platforms, but the, but the loudest voices and the most uh, partisan voices tend to dominate um, as do conspiracy theories. So it, it, I mean, it's a huge challenge, but I agree. I mean, I think that if, if we don't have to listen to the same, you know, we, we need to craft alternatives, particularly if you're on the conservative side of the aisle and you care about finding candidates who actually can speak to these needs that aren't Trump, that are sort of a different style of politician than Trump. They're going to need to find ways to do that that isn't, you know, reliant on this kind of data. Okay. Uh, let me talk to you about one way that you might find interesting new perspectives, and that is to listen to the podcast by our sponsor today, Jordan Harbinger and the Jordan Harbinger Show. Apple named his podcast one of its best of 2018, and it's aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works. 
and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. There's an episode, as you've heard me say, for everyone, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. He interviews H.R. McMaster. He interviews the great hedge fund guy, Ray Dalio. Uh, one constant is his ability, Jordan's ability, to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You'll find something you can apply to your own life. Whether that's a routine change that's actionable on your part, that boosts your productivity, or just a slight tweak in your perspective that changes how you see the world. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe or search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so we just did polling and how we now need to uh, completely revisit the way we try to uh, talk about politics. Noah, you just said that, you know, there was a... I'm not sure, by the way, that um, there was an enormous Trump surge. Um, It looks to me like... I don't. I don't think. I'm sorry. Continue. But no, I was just going to say. I don't think there's an enormous um, Trump surge. I think there's. A, it's, it's a distinction with a difference. I think there was an enormous Republican surge. Okay. Well, here's here's all I was going to say. So it is. Um, Trump's going to get. It looks like about ten percent more vote than he got in 2016 overall, but the country is um, is uh, has gone from 322 to 330 million people in that time. So uh, his growth is in part sort of natural electorate growth. Biden's going to top out at around 70, 71 million, it looks like, which is what Obama got in 2008. But again, Obama got it in a smaller country. Um, So uh, it looks like the turnout here was a record but it's a record, but it's not like some, you know, world-changing event that the turnout was a record. What's interesting is how it appears the coalitions that these guys got shifted from what you would have expected from Trump in 2016 and from the Democrats, if you say, you know, Hillary in 2016 and Biden in 2020. Sure. Um before I answer that okay. setup, um, it is in my view that the presidential race is the least interesting race that occurred last night. Um, in part because I don't, I think that the the, out, the outcome is extremely narrow, obviously, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that at this point the president is likely to pull it out. Nevertheless, he might. But what's really interesting is the extent to which Republicans across the board beat expectations. Um, Cory Gardner in, Cal- in Colorado lost his race as he was expected to. But as of this writing, no other incumbent that was embattled has lost. Uh, Joni Ernst pulled it out in Iowa. Tom Tillis appears to have won in North Carolina. Susan Collins appears to have won in Maine in a state that Joe Biden seems to have won rather handily, suggesting quite a lot of ticket splitting. As of this writing, John James remains in a very competitive position in Michigan, um, which he is probably unlikely to pull out, but it right. has done far better than any service. Well, and then of course there's the big and story. In Georgia, yeah. In Georgia, there's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I got to get through this litany here. Go David ahead. Perdue appears to have won a majority of the vote, suggesting that he can avoid a runoff. Martha McSally lost and she is singularly responsible for turning two Arizona Senate seats blue, but that doesn't really say much about the Republican party as much as it does as Martha McSally on the house level. Republicans wait, were expected wait, to be. You've missed two big ones. Which what? 
You missed Lindsey or one Lindsey Graham. Graham. I forgot. He kind Lindsay of fell Graham. off the radar. Jamie Harrison spent a hundred million dollars <laughs> in South Carolina, a state where you would conventionally spend about five to ten million running for Senate. Spent ten times that. Final polling average had had Lindsey Graham up by three. He's won by thirteen and a half. Another one of the epic polling failures of this uh, election season. Now, if he if Lindsey won by thirteen and a half, again, this is where we go back. It is very unlikely that Jamie Harrison was ever anywhere within shooting distance of him at all, ever. And that this is a number that was ginned up as a result of bad polling. Well, it yeah. might have been closer two or three weeks ago than it, than it ended up being. Sur- surveys caught some movement in, in Lindsey Graham's direction. Right. Okay, um, anyway. So, and then there is a second one, which you wanted to mention, which is Mitch McConnell. Yes, Mitch uh, McConnell. handily defeated yes. uh, McGrath. Yeah. Amy McGrath. Amy McGrath. Uh, and also $100 million. Right. So the amount of money that Democratic uh, givers wasted in this election season. <laughs> if you want to add it up, $100 million to Jamie Harrison, $100 million to Amy McGrath, close to $100 million to Teresa Greenfield, who lost to Joni Ernst. Okay? These are Senate races. And yes, it's now very easy to raise money because of, you know, because of the push-button nature of the internet. But my God, like talk about stuff that should be given to a you know homeless shelter, or to like you know or to like a, a, a you know a feed you know whatever uh, uh, you know mental health uh, awareness or you know or building shelters or you know or something because this money was just evanesced into air, spent to nothing, supporting television and radio stations and internet sites and political consultants. Yeah, to say nothing of the vanity projects to which a lot of earnest anti-Trump donors contributed that really just lined the pockets of consultants and, and went Name to it. projects like... Name it or shame it. Lincoln Project. The Lincoln Project. Oh, the Lincoln... Which spent oh, tons so of money on, on Texas and uh, buying ads in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. in Florida. <laughs> yeah. So, the, yes, the Lincoln Project. Meanwhile, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee said in, in late October that they were starved for funds. And it's not like these third-party groups were having a problem raising money. Anyway, pivoting off that, the Senate is really interesting. The House is even more interesting. Republicans were forecast to be around 180 members, a real rump at the end of this. Yeah, they were uh, supposed to lose 15 seats, another 15 seats, uh, having lost 40 in 2018. They were going to be down 55 seats or something. Yeah, so what happened? Republicans gained seats. They won net seats so far as of this writing, writing, reading, talking. Four plus four Republican seats in the House. And it doesn't end there, folks. On the legislative level, which was really where all the balls are, or all the die is cast for the future of the, the next decade, because we're entering into a, a reapportionment cycle here, where redistricting is going to shape the map for the next 10 years. Um, Republicans held onto chambers, held onto legislative chambers in places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, North Carolina, Michigan, Iowa, Texas. They won the New Hampshire Senate. And they, I think they won a trifecta in places like Montana, trifecta being the governor in both chambers of the legislature. Um, this is a real blow 
to Democrats who had a lot of tri- there were a lot of triumphalist quotes from Democrats over the last couple of days saying, you know, we're going to remake the map and the 2020s will be a Democratic decade. So much for that. Right. And you know what? Let's talk policy, because uh, the obvious thing that's going to happen here is win, lose or draw. Biden wins. Trump wins. Whoever wins. Uh, there ain't going to be no pack in the court. There aren't going to be four, two new states <laughs> and four new senators. Uh, you know, th- this isn't going to happen. That is not going to happen. So, so, but in poly, so if we just look at that in New York City, Max Rose, a reasonably conservative Democratic congressman, was blown out of the water in Staten Island by Nicole Miliotakis. And you know what she ran on? She ran on defunding the cops and the evil of Bill de Blasio and tied Max Rose, who hates de Blasio and is against defunding the cops, to both of those. And he made commercial after commercial saying he hates de Blasio and he's not for defunding the cops and she's a liar. And she won anyway by, I think, it, I, I, last I saw it was at some point it was like 14 points. Um, why? Because actually the people of Staten Island sort of understood that if Max Rose goes to the Congress uh, as a member of the Democratic majority, he is going to vote for defunding the cops. Or he's not going to do anything to stop it or argue against it. And they don't want to defund the cops. And this is a very big thing. This is a much more important thing. This is what I mean when I say we are not getting good information to understand how the American public feels about a lot of what happened this year. Because if you have this uh, inability of Democrats to get these 15 seats that they were supposed to get, or to flip all these senators, or to do whatever. This is not because Trump was so strong. It could be that the issue set in the Democratic Party remains too left-wing for voters in these places, and they aren't going to vote for it. But you know, you know that there's going to be this contingent. This happens after any time, and even if even if Biden, you know, uh, squeaks through and wins, which I agree with, no, I think he probably will. You know that the the pressure is going to come from the left flank on the Democratic Party saying the reason this was so close is that we didn't go full progressive, like full if 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 we'd picked Bernie or if we'd had Biden go full on Bernie like progressive, this would have been a landslide. I mean, they don't ever learn. Um, so I, I, I think we'll see that maybe that lesson will sink in if if twenty twenty two doesn't look good for Democrats. But I don't know. I'm not convinced that that lesson is oh, going to be learned think, at I all. Know, I know it's going to be learned. But here, here's what I mean when I say that the polling had a bizarre effect on the national conversation this year. So when, let's say, in Kenosha, uh, you know, there, there were the riots in Kenosha uh, after, uh, you know, whatever, Kyle Rittenhouse. Or, um, and... Democrats got worried, like serious, like politically minded Democrats got worried that this was going to hurt. Like this is the worst place this could happen. It's going to hurt. It's going to help Trump, blah, 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 blah. And then after a couple of days, they're like, "Hmm, well, you know, it's not showing up in the polling. So I guess maybe the idea is not that it's going to hurt. So they saw something happening that made them say, this isn't good. It's not good in and of itself. 
because rioting and looting and burning things and you know smashing windows is bad even even though they somehow got to believe that they had to argue that it was good at some point or to sort of defend it or say it wasn't happening when you could see it happening behind the cameraman as he you know behind the reporter as he was talking about it saying it was mostly peaceful while things were burning behind him and then came some data that made them say, oh, I guess people don't really, it's actually not, uh, they really do care much more about social justice than they care about this. And uh, there, that is not the takeaway from what happened in Wisconsin. Even if, if Biden pulls it out, he pulls it out by, you know, by 0.2%. And let's say Trump was down there. I mean, who knows? But do we really think, given what we saw last night, that we can say of a certainty that Trump's issue set in 2020 was harmful to him? No, I mean, one of the interesting take potential, uh, I'm speculating wildly here, obviously, uh, one of the potential takeaways from that uh, setup that you just gave us, John, is that instead of focusing on the potential shy Trump voter, what that was evidence of is that people self-censor when asked questions about race and identity and things that are very that, that they're very sensitive of being seen as as on the wrong side of. That actually is worrisome to me because if people are thinking to themselves, well, this writing literally is scaring me and this is really bad. And, and then they're asked, do you support Black Lives Matter? And they go, oh yes, of course. Right. So those are those are not the you, that's a contradictory thing, but they are self censoring when reporting that. That that I think is something that is going to be worth watching. In the Abe, years to come. what do you think about the shy Trump voter theory now? The shy Tory, the Bradley vote theory now, given what we saw last night. Uh, I think it's it's a very robust phenomenon, and I think it's the it's a petrified uh, Trump voter uh, is 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 actually what it was, which is what I suspected the case to be. I mean, and, and you know, just to revisit the, the, what Christine just said about the problem with the, with the polling here is that um, it's one thing to um, sort of passively walk around in the social justice world and, you know, know for yourself that, um, uh, that, that it's, that it's, um, wrong and scary and seems unjust, as Noah would say. Um, um, but the polling makes you say the lie. And that, and that is a very exactly. scary thing. That's the push polling aspect yeah. that I was trying to get to, a kind of macro push polling, that it sets a national mood. These polls can set a national mood that actually do influence the way people behave individually. And that is their purpose. And that is why maybe I totally agreed with Noah. I said, look, these polls can't be as bad, can't be as off as, as, as people are saying, some people are saying, because the industry will be destroyed, right? But come on, like we're talking about in the last four years, the idea that the signal and cardinal thing that needed to be done was to destroy Trump and get him out to save American democracy. Who knows what set of incentives that creates for people who are laboring in the fields of public opinion and, you know, and public policy and all that. You just, you just don't know. There are so many incentives to to do a thing in your head where you say I'm like the if I went back in time and it was 1931 in Berlin what would I do well if what I had to do was help was help kind of like skew the results of a poll 
so that the American people would think that, you know, that um, Black Lives Matter is good, uh, then I can tell my grandchildren I did that. Now, that's <laughs> not a conspiracy, you know? I'm not even saying it's a conspiracy. I'm just saying that there are weird incentives and you could combine, given the size of these polling errors, you could combine two or three things. Like there can be an element of the shy Trump voter. There can be the element of futzing around with the polls. There can be an element of the um, self-censorship, which is not the shy Trump voter thing. Okay, here's a way for us to quantify this. So I know we just had a thing going off on the exit polls, but... Um, AP VoteCast, um, which is a survey of the American electorate, which is post-weighted and had did some re-weighting at 1.15 a.m. in accordance with the preliminary vote total. So it's not completely ridiculous. Um, voters were asked, quote, how serious a problem is racism in U.S. society? Now, you know the right answer to that, right? The right answer is very serious or somewhat, as opposed to not too or not at all serious. The you know real responsible people would say very serious somewhat. And 76% of voters said very serious somewhat, or 23% said not too serious, not at all. Now, it won't surprise you that among that 23%, Donald Trump won 90% of that vote. But among the 76% who said a very serious somewhat problem, Joe Biden won 65% of that vote. Donald Trump won a full third of voters who said very serious somewhat, which suggests they don't mean it because Donald Trump is not the candidate of racial rapprochement. We all know this. Couldn't they mean? So it's just, it's, uh, this is, this is just a, this, yeah. this is a question, but I, I know I'm not leading uh, because I don't know the answer. But might they not mean that? Um, yes, racism is a problem in this country. Meaning, like last night when people tweet, um, if Trump wins, it's on white people. Or regarding Florida, thank you, white Cubans. Um, they, they are thinking about they are thinking about racism in this country, but not in the um, prescribed paradigm. Well, so we were talking about this last night uh, while results were coming in. Right there was a, there was this absolutely tortured real time effort by the the hardcore identitarian left, uh, the Jamel Hills who tweeted it's on white people, the Nicole Hannah Jones of New, the New York Times doing the same thing, where you could see them trying to turn particularly Hispanic voters white in real time. It's like, well, they're not really the minority; they're not the real minority. If you see, they they they're complicit in capitalist. At, I mean, the, the the myriad of excuses that were were made were kind of fascinating. But that will be the effort of the identity politics left that. It, when they dig in their heels, they have to turn these minority voters white or they have to, as the horrible Joy Reid said on MSNBC, they have to be called traitors to their own race. She called Clarence Thomas Uncle Thomas or Uncle Clarence uh, on live TV. It's absolutely disgusting. She okay. also accused yeah. Tom Tillis of racism. And what she meant to do was accuse David Perdue of racism. Yeah. So, you know, right. I mean, yeah. when, they're, when they're all basically... Yeah, when they're, yeah, you've seen one white Southerner, you've seen them all. <laughs> anyway... um. You know, they all look alike, basically. Um, so, but I think something is going to happen over the next couple of months. It started happening. It's been happening intermittently over the course of the Trump presidency, particularly if Trump should draw to an inside story again and pull this out and, and actually be declared the victor. Full-blown, open anti-Americanism of a sort that we really haven't seen since the 60s with the attacks on the hard hats 
and the, you know, the pigs and the monsters and the, you know, that it's okay to, you know, blow up police stations and to blow up army recruiting stations and to spit on Vietnam veterans and all of that. And this whole notion that, you know, we're an incredibly unjust society, we're monstrous and the people who vote in, you know, the Archie bunkers of the world are subhuman, should be treated as subhuman and should be uh, destroyed. That is a very serious element that, uh, the need to, as it was understood electorally, to still be able to appeal to some of those people, which is essentially why Biden ended up with the nomination, was the implicit argument that he could speak to white working class people in a way that no, n- none of the other latte sippers in the in the field uh, or you know out and out communists in the field could. Um, but. We are we are two sec we are two clicks of the dial away from utter America hatred of a very cartoonish sort that will have horrendous uh, implications. So with that, we <laughs> so with that cheerful message, uh, I hope we've managed to entertain you in our in our weird. Um, semi-dazed uh, condition here uh, we I guess we'll have more to say tomorrow um, with more information that comes in so until then for Christine Abe and Noah I'm John Podhoritz keep the candle burning <laughs>